Hello, everyone. My name is David Beer, and I'm the Immigration Policy Analyst for the Cato Institute. Thank you all for joining us for today's Cato Web Book Forum, Free to Move, Foot Voting, Migration, and Political Freedom. The book's author will join us today to discuss and defend his arguments. The author is Ilya Soman, Professor of Law at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. You can purchase Free to Move and his other books through Amazon. Also with us today are Peter Margulies, Professor of Law at Roger Williams University School of Law, and Brian Kaplan, Professor of Economics at George Mason University. Peter and Brian will provide their reactions to Free to Move. After Peter and Brian speak, Ilya will respond to the responses, and then the entire panel will accept questions. You may submit your questions at any time at the Cato.org webpage for this event or on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter using the hashtag CatoImmigration. So without further ado, Ilya, please begin your presentation. Uh I'd like to start by thanking David Beer and the Cato Institute for organizing this event and Peter and Brian for what I know will be their insightful comments. Uh, and I'm now gonna uh, do the exciting step of sharing my screen so that you can begin to uh, see the PowerPoint presentation that goes with the book. So uh, here we are. Uh, and uh, so this is the cover of my book, Free to Move, Foot Voting, Migration and Political Freedom which was just published by Oxford University Press. Uh, and as the title implies, the book is about voting with your feet. Uh, we normally think of ballot box voting as the main way that we express political choice and exercise political freedom. But in the book, I argue that voting with your feet uh, is often better on many dimensions. It's a better path to political freedom. And it also, if we expand opportunities to for people to vote with their feet, there is a great deal that we can do to improve human welfare as well. In the book, I talk about three types of voting with your feet. Foot voting in federal systems, where we decide where we want to live in a state or a local government based on the government's policies in those areas. There's also foot voting in the private sector, and the most controversially, foot voting through international migration. And in the last part of the presentation, I'll talk about some standard objections to expanding foot voting opportunities. Many of those objections are primarily used against international migration, but as we will see, they apply in most cases just as readily to internal migration as well. So first things first, I want to look at the advantages that foot voting has over ballot box voting. We normally think of ballot box voting as the way we exercise political choice. Uh, for example, in the 2020 election, we will get to choose the next president, as well as the occupants of many other offices. And I think ballot box voting does indeed have some real value, but it also has two major flaws. One is that when you vote at the ballot box, the chance that your vote will actually make a difference to the outcome is infinitesimally small about one in 60 million in a presidential election, somewhat higher in most state or local elections, but still extremely low. Now, we normally don't think of a one in one million or a one in 60 million chance as meaningful freedom in other contexts. 
For example, if you have only a one in 60 million chance of being able to determine what kind of religion you're gonna practice, we wouldn't say you have meaningful religious freedom. Similarly, if you have only a one in 60 million chance of being able to decide what kinds of opinions you're going to express, we would not say that you have meaningful freedom of speech. And I think the same point applies to political freedom, uh, that when you have only a tiny chance of being able to determine which government policies you're going to be subjected to, that strongly indicates that at best you have very little political freedom, if any. There is a second aspect uh, to the limitations of ballot box voting, and that is that when we vote at the ballot box, we have very little incentive to make a well-informed decision. Precisely because your chances of affecting the outcome of so little, uh, it turns out that there is very little motivation to acquire relevant information about politics uh, or the policies of the different parties that are likely affects. Uh, and indeed, survey data overwhelmingly showed that most voters know very little about what is going on. Uh, for example, uh, only about a third of Americans can even name the three branches of the federal government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. In this book, and even more so in my previous book, Democracy and Political Ignorance, I describe the extensive evidence of voter ignorance, both in the U.S. and abroad. The American Medical Association says that before a doctor can operate on you or give you any kind of treatment, they have to have the patient's informed consent. The patient has to agree to the procedure and they have to be informed about uh, what the procedure is likely to do. With democratic government, most of the time, the government is like a doctor whose treatments you have no ability to evaluate you have very little understanding of whether what they're going to give you is snake oil or a real cure. And also you have virtually no ability to refuse their treatment. You have to accept it uh, often without knowing whether it's snake oil or not. Uh, that strikes me as a problematic state of affairs. Uh, with ballot box voting, on the other hand, uh, or rather with foot voting, on the other hand, uh, both of these problems are greatly mitigated. When you choose where to live, or when you make choices in the private sector uh, or choice about international migration, that choice is highly likely to make a difference. And therefore, people make much more of an effort to acquire relevant information and to carefully consider it. If you're like most people, you probably spent more time and effort seeking out relevant information the last time you decided what television to buy or what smartphone to get than the last time you decided who to vote for for president or for any other political office. That's not because the television set is more important than who runs the federal government or that it makes more complicated decisions. It's that you knew that the decision about the TV would actually make a difference. But when you bring it home and you flip on the TV and you have the misfortune of seeing the president or some other government official, you know that there is a very little chance that you can affect who that is. And as a result, generally speaking, you spend less time acquiring relevant information. In the book, I go through different theories of political freedom uh, put forward by a wide variety of legal scholars and philosophers and others. And I explain how these two advantages of foot voting over ballot box voting 
are also advantages under a wide range of versions uh, of political theory and theories of political freedom. So it's not just limited to some one theory uh, or to some specifically libertarian idea. I'm happy to talk about that in greater detail in questions. Uh, for now, I'd like to take a closer look at the three different types of foot voting described in the book. Uh, the most significant one, or at least the one that is most often recognized, is foot voting under federalism, where people can choose where to live uh, in a federal system, like in a state or a local government. This offers a great deal of freedom of choice to people. Uh, in the United States, for example, we have 50 state governments, but we also have almost 90,000 local governments of various kinds. So there's a great many possible options for people to choose which jurisdictions fit their needs best. I think foot voting under federalism can be very effective, even if the jurisdictions are not making an active effort to compete for foot voters, but it can be even better if they are trying to compete and therefore trying to offer packages of public services, which are likely to be attractive to people. And in the book, I describe various ways to stimulate competition of that sort. Uh, and also to reduce potential perverse incentives. It is sometimes said that foot voting under federalism is only effective for the wealthy, for those it means. I think actually the opposite is true historically. Uh, it is in fact the case that historically, poorer people and the oppressed have benefited most from this form of foot voting uh, for a variety of reasons. But it is also true that in recent years, various barriers to foot voting, particularly for the poor have built up the most significant being restrictive zoning, which makes it almost impossible in some places to build new housing in response to new demand by people who might want to move in. In the book, I discuss various ways to alleviate that barrier, as well as some others that have arisen. Uh, the next type of foot voting I'd like to talk about is foot voting in the private sector, which is often not seen as an example of foot voting at all, but in reality, lots of private sector institutions offer services that are similar to those traditionally offered by state or local governments. The biggest example is private planned communities, which often offer a wide range of different amenities, including environmental services, trash removal, security, education, and many others. Uh, it is now the case that some 69 million Americans already live in these kinds of private planned communities. So it would be a mistake to argue, as some people do, that this is just for the wealthy or that this is the super rich walling themselves off from the rest of society. Uh, and these kinds of private planned communities offer some significant advantages, even relative to foot voting in a federal system. One obvious one is that you can fit many more of them into a given territory uh, and thereby offer a wider range of choice to consumers and uh, foot voters. In addition, a lot of data suggests that the services provided by private planned communities often are actually better in various ways than similar services provided by state or local governments. So that's a significant advantage uh, as well. Uh, in the book, while I argue, as I've said, that it's certainly not the case that this is reserved for the wealthy. It is true that sometimes the poor and the lower middle class don't have as much access to these kinds of options as is desirable. Uh, and I describe various ways to increase the availability of private plan communities. I also uh, discuss how uh, private plan communities are just one of many types of 
private sector foot voting. There is a wide variety of other options that can be made available, such as private sector school choice, many options in civil society, uh, and so forth. I don't claim that private foot voting can completely displace all functions of state or local or especially national governments, but I do think that uh, this sort of alternative can be much more widely used than it is now. Uh, and it offers numerous valuable foot voting opportunities where it is available, not just in the United States, but also in many countries around the world where these kinds of private plan communities have become more common. The most controversial type of foot voting is obviously foot voting through international migration. However, although it is especially controversial, both in current American politics and elsewhere, it also offers probably the biggest gains of any type of foot voting out there. The reason why is that the difference in quality of government between nations is often far larger than any differences internally. Uh, if you compare whatever you think is the best American state to whatever you think is the worst, the difference is probably significant, but it pales in comparison to the difference between the U.S. and Mexico, or the U.S. and Cuba, or the U.S. and Venezuela, and many, many other similar examples around the world. Uh, so as it turns out, with this kind of foot voting, because the differences are so large, you get enormous gains in human freedom on any kind of dimension, on many different kinds of variables when you throw open the borders to this kind of foot voting. On the screen are two examples, refugees fleeing communist Cuba for the U.S. Clearly, on any kind of measurement of freedom, political and otherwise, they get more of it if they arrive in the U.S. and are allowed to stay there. Similarly, before the Trump administration shut down almost all refugee admissions, this is an example of Syrian refugees being admitted to the U.S. They were escaping oppression by the Assad regime, by ISIS terrorists, uh, the terror of warfare as well. And clearly their situation on any dimension of human freedom on any possible measurement uh, vastly improves through international migration. It's worth adding that some one third of the world's population lives in societies which are dictatorships at another 20 percent live in what are called or considered partly free or partly democratic societies where there is some degree of democracy, but it's deeply corrupt and flawed. For those people, foot voting through international migration is almost certainly virtually the only way that they can hope to exercise any kind of political choice at all. Uh, I would add also that uh, foot voting through international migration greatly increases human welfare and economic freedom Economists estimate uh, that if we uh, uh, drop all legal barriers to migration throughout the world, world GDP would double. Uh, that is, the world would be twice as wealthy as it currently is. That's because there are so many millions of people currently trapped in societies where the governments are so oppressive or so corrupt and flawed that no matter how hardworking those people are, no matter what they do, they have little or no chance of escaping poverty. Whereas if they're allowed to move to a freer and better run society, almost immediately they can double or triple their productivity and those gains become larger over time uh, as they assimilate in a new society and have an opportunity to improve their skills. So there is enormous economic gains, there's enormous gains in political freedom, and there's enormous gains on virtually any conception of, of freedom that you can imagine, whether libertarian uh, or otherwise. 
Now, of course, despite these enormous gains, uh, foot voting through international migration is also subject to a variety of common objections. In the book, I divide them in two categories. One is ones where it is argued that the current governments of a jurisdiction have the absolute right to exclude for almost any reason they want. The other is ones where people raise various practical objections that they say it's not that you can exclude for any reason whatsoever, but there are particular practical problems that can arise that justify exclusions such as overburdening the welfare state or increasing crime uh, or other things of this sort. So let's take first the absolute right to exclude theories. The most common type of that theory is the idea that a particular territory belongs to a particular racial or ethnic or cultural group. Does on the screen, you have one example, French nationalists say France is for the French. Ethnically French people are the ones who really own France and they can exclude other groups if they want to. There are a variety of problems with this kind of theory. One is that it doesn't actually work that well for the US because it seems like in the US, if any group has that, that right, it's Native American, so they could perhaps kick the rest of us out. But even in other countries, this theory has very serious problems, such as that if you look at the history of virtually any society, it doesn't seem to be the case that there was ever one single homogenous group that owned it. Rather, each of these countries, including France and others, has a history of having multiple groups within it, also a history of conquest and forcible displacement. So there doesn't seem to be any large territory in the world where you can truly point to a single ethnic or cultural or racial group that can truly make some sort of historical claim to own the area. But there is an even more basic problem with this argument, and that is that if you take it seriously, it justifies a form of racial or ethnic discrimination that we would reject pretty much anywhere else. Certainly internally, we reject the idea that your race or your ethnicity or your culture should determine how much freedom you have or where you're allowed to live. We reject Jim Crow racial segregation. We reject South African apartheid and so forth. But this theory would have us believe that when it comes to international migration, we can in fact discriminate on the basis of race or ethnicity. And I would suggest that the same reasons why this should be forbidden domestically also apply internationally. The basic idea is that what race you are or what ethnicity you are, it's not something you can control. It's not a moral uh, issue. And it's not something that determines what kind of a person you are, how good you are, or how much freedom you're entitled to. Uh, Martin Luther King famously said, we should judge people by the content of their character rather than by the color of their skin. Your race of birth is a morally irrelevant characteristic. Uh, and I think that applies internationally as well. Indeed, place of birth, uh, where you're born in the world, also seems to be morally relevant in much the same way as race. It's not something you can control. It doesn't determine your character. It should not determine how much freedom you're allowed to have. The other kind of argument that is often made to justify a general right to exclude, and one more often heard in the U.S., is the analogy between a nation uh, and a house or a club. So the owner of a private house can exclude people for almost any reason he or she wants. And similarly, a private club can exclude people who want to join, even if there's not a particularly compelling reason to do so. Uh, we can say, well, this is just the club of Boston Red Sox fans and New York Yankees fans and fans of other teams. Uh, they have to stay away. 
So similarly, it is argued the U.S. is like a house or a club, and therefore the U.S. government can exclude people if it wants and doesn't have a good doesn't have to have a good reason. There are a number of flaws with this argument, but I think the biggest is that if you take it seriously, it justifies severe oppression not just of immigrants but also of natives. Consider the fact that the owner of a house has the right to decide what kind of political speech would be permitted in her house. She can say uh, only pro-Republican or pro-Democratic speech is permitted. She can also say, I will only allow the practice of the religion that I like in my house, perhaps only the Muslim religion or only the Christian one, uh, and forbid all other religious worship. So if a national government has the same right to exclude uh, as the owner of a house, it can oppress natives as readily as uh, people who might try to enter. And the same thing is true with the club analogy. You can certainly have a Christian club, a Muslim club, a Republican club, uh, and so forth. There are several other problems with these analogies as well, but I think the basic lesson is that it's a mistake to derive the powers of government uh, from analogies to houses or clubs. It just doesn't really work. There are a variety of people who argue that we should be able to exclude, not because there's some general right to do so, uh, but because there are particular practical problems uh, that can arise, such as overburdening the welfare state or immigrants coming in and voting for the wrong people for bad government policies or more recently the spread of diseases such as COVID-19. I don't have time to go through all of these in the presentation though I do go through a great many in the book. Here I'll just describe my general framework for dealing with them. One is to ask uh, how big is the problem really? Often it turns out that it's not really much of a problem at all for example, if you look both within the U.S. and also internationally, jurisdictions with more immigrants per capita don't actually seem to have more welfare spending per capita as a result. The immigrants don't overburden the welfare state. Indeed, overwhelmingly, they tend to be net contributors uh, to the public fisc. And the same thing is true for a number of other problems that are often posited, for example, in the U.S. at least, far from increasing crime, immigrants actually have lower crime rates than natives do. But let's say that there is a genuine problem caused by migration, and I don't deny that genuine problems do sometimes occur. Then the second question to ask is, is there a keyhole solution? That is, is there a solution that can address the problem or alleviate it without actually barring people? Uh, and very often there is. For example, for welfare, if the welfare state really is being overburdened, you can do what the U.S. already does to a large extent, and that is to limit the eligibility of immigrants for certain kinds of welfare benefits. And similarly, if you believe that immigrants are going to be bad voters, they're going to vote for bad government policies, you can also do more of what we already do. Even now, immigrants do not have the right to vote unless they're here for at least five years, unless they pass a civics test that most native-born Americans would fail. You could potentially make the test harder or make the five-year period longer and so forth. Finally, let's say there is a real problem, but it's also the case that there isn't the keyhole solution that's likely to work. Then still we have a third option, which is to tap the vast wealth created by free migration to try to address some of the problems uh, that uh, would arise. Uh, so for example, let's say immigration really does increase crime and there's not an obvious 
keyhole solution for this? Well, we know from social science data that having more police on the streets uh, can reduce crime, both by immigrants and natives, and therefore we can tap some of the vast wealth created by migration and increase the number of cops on the streets. Indeed, in the book, I point out that if we simply abolish ICE and other government agencies devoted to constraining migration and deporting migrants and instead spend the same money on ordinary police, we could hire a lot more of them and therefore do much more to alleviate crime. Obviously, we would also want to have safeguards against police abuse. That is a, you know, a whole other important issue, but that issue arises in the status quo as well. And finally, I would note that uh, all of this framework applies well to the issue of spreading diseases such as COVID-19. There is potentially a real problem here, but there is an obvious solution, a keyhole solution, the 14-day quarantine already used by South Korea and other nations. You don't need a ban on migration. Just keep people in quarantine for a few days if they're coming from a high-risk area. Uh, and that works actually much better than attempts at exclusion for reasons that I can go into uh, in greater detail later. Finally, I would note that all of these objections that are made, although they're usually today made against international migration, if you take them seriously as reasons for restricting freedom of movement, they apply to internal migration as well. If you worry about migrants overburdening the welfare state, the same thing can happen if people migrate from wealthy American states, or rather from poor American states to wealthy ones. If you worry about them spreading disease, that can happen internally as well. Uh, they can also come in and vote for bad policies. That can happen internally also. And if you think that the United States is like a house or a club, why can't Texas be like a house or a club uh, or Virginia and so forth? Much more can be said, uh, but for now I conclude and I very much look forward to the discussion and questions. Thank you, Ilya. Uh, I just want to remind everyone, everyone that you may submit your questions at any time at the Cato.org webpage for this event or on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter using the hashtag for the event, Cato Immigration. Uh, now, Peter, please begin your presentation. Thank you. Thanks very much, David. First, I do want to thank David uh, and the Cato Institute for uh, having me involved in this program. David's work has been a particular inspiration in a lot of the work I've done recently. I've been filing amicus curiae briefs, that is friend of the court briefs, to support challenges to various Trump administration, immigration bars and bans. There's so many, it's hard to count them at this point. David's work has been a continuing source of information and a, a great source of analysis in the amicus work I've done literally around the country, uh, including, for example, a case just brought by the National Association of Manufacturers and the Chamber of Commerce in reaction to what's called the non-immigrant visa ban that uh, cuts off access to certain visas that are predicated on getting US jobs. Uh, but before I talk about that, let me talk about the general uh, format of U.S. Uh, visa bans. And that comes from uh, 
starting with the, kind of the signature move of this administration, which was the travel ban, sometimes called the Muslim ban, that President Trump announced right after becoming president in January 2017. It went through three, count them, three iterations. And what all these bans did uh, is uh, fulfill the Trump campaign pledge, which was uh, a total and complete shutdown of Muslim immigration to the United States. They didn't quite do that. It wasn't totally complete, but it was and is a very serious ban, a very serious impediment for thousands of people otherwise would be absolutely qualified to get immigrant visas, typically as close relatives of US citizens or lawful residents, including some young children who are now separated from their families as a result of the ban. What the ban did is affect many, but not all, majority Muslim countries, including Iran, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen, that throw-ins like North Korea, which doesn't allow anyone to leave anyway, and also a limited ban for Venezuela, just the leaders of the regime and their families and associates. But that's kind of a cloak for what really is in many ways a Muslim ban. Uh, this is upheld, sadly, by the Supreme Court of the United States. I say sadly because I, along with many other people, submitted amicus briefs in this case, too. And the Supreme Court, in opinion by Chief Justice Roberts, uh, didn't buy any of our amicus briefs. Instead, they sided with the government and basically gave deference to the president on this foreign affairs matter. And so the particular provision of the Immigration and Nationality Act, uh, 1182F, gave the president authority to bar the entry of anyone who was detrimental to the interests of the United States. That's a pretty wide standard uh, for folks who are concerned about excessive delegation of power, and that may include some people in the audience today. Uh, there's a fair question about whether this is an excessive delegation of the president, but because it's the realm of foreign affairs, the court has been inclined, at least historically, to uphold that kind of very wide delegation. We move on from there to what we call the asylum ban. And that's a ban on refugees who enter at the southern border, but enter at a point other than an officially designated entry point. The problem there is that the asylum statute is actually very broad because Congress realized that refugees couldn't always pick and choose where they enter the country when they're fleeing their persecutors. And the Immigration Act specifically says you can apply for asylum even if you enter at a point that's other than a designated point. This ban has been enjoined by courts, including a uh, injunction that was affirmed by the Ninth Circuit a couple of years ago in an opinion written by very conservative Judge Jay Bybee. And the Supreme Court refused to grant a stay in that case. So that ban at least has been uh, enjoined by the courts uh, at least through the duration of uh, final adjudication on this case. Uh, then we also have the uninsured ban, in which I also submitted, along with others, an amicus brief. This bars persons, including close relatives, citizens, and lawful residents who lack what the Trump administration called approved health insurance. Approved health insurance is basically bare bones plans that many states outlaw in this country that only pay, let's say, for catastrophic care. Those plans are inconsistent with the Affordable Care Act, the ACA, otherwise known as Obamacare. 
And by the way, the ACA actually encourages the enrollment of foreign nationals. And this dovetails very nicely with what Ilya was talking about just now. It turns out that foreign nationals actually sustain health insurance because they are generally healthier. They are healthier than we are. In fact, there's a name for this phenomenon. It's called the healthy immigrant effect. Right? So why would the Trump administration want to exclude healthy immigrants? Well, we can scratch our heads and try to figure out the answer. That has also been enjoined by the courts. And then we have DACA, another signature move of this administration. Uh, that is the rescission of DACA, which is a program for childhood arrivals, people with no control over coming here because they were, came here with their parents. It's an Obama administration program that has helped over 800,000 people become productive residents of this country. I was on a panel a couple of years ago with a computer programmer, a lot smarter than I was, who was a DACA recipient. We should encourage those folks to be here and to be productive members of our society. That's completely consistent with what Ely has said. But the Trump administration also want to rescind this program. The Supreme Court held, as all of you know, in late June, that the rescission was unlawful because Homeland Security in enacting the rescission didn't consider what's called the expectations or reliance interests of DACA recipients in going to school, getting medical treatment, serving in the armed forces, and all the other kinds of service that these folks have engaged in. The Supreme Court also said that there would be a huge economic impact for the rescission, if folks actually had to leave, that would mean about $300 billion down the tubes that DACA recipients directly or indirectly contribute to the national economy and taxes and business revenue. By the way, I have an article coming out for the Cato Supreme Court Review, a distinguished publication. It's called The DACA Decision, Reading Reliance Interests into Immigration Law. That's currently posted on SSRN, a law professor and uh, academic database. Now, having said all this about the issues with Trump administration bans and bars, I do want to say that there remains a case for sovereignty. And in this respect, I do disagree with Ilya. Uh, even if President Trump's signature moves don't put sovereignty's best foot forward, there is an argument uh, in the sovereignty camp. So let's accept, by the way, that states should accept refugees and they should also promote family reunification for citizens and residents. And indeed, you can also further acknowledge that states should engage in periodic immigration reform, some folks might call it amnesty, that will make sure that people who are here without an immigration status can come out of the shadows and uh, have a legalized basis for staying here. But even so, you could argue that massive inflows of immigrants at any particular time can actually swamp the country. They can amount to free riders who harm gateway areas. Uh, and that would include states like New York, California, Florida, and Texas that are common destinations for immigrants. Those states will have to provide services, including school. They may not have the resources to do it, at least in the short term, and they probably won't get as much help as they need from the federal government because those states tend to be uh, net uh, donors of revenue to the federal government, they don't get back what they provide. Uh, and so for that massive influx kind of category, I think there's at least some case for asserting a sovereign interest in regulating immigration. Indeed, even uh, one of the great uh, and uh, most longtime open borders philosophers, Joseph Karens of the University of Toronto, 
agrees that that massive flow problem is a legitimate concern. A country has a valid interest, at least I would argue, in curbing that kind of disruption, and it's very hard to do it after the fact. You want to be proactive, and I think states do have a sovereign interest in doing that. Uh, I also want to take on the accidents of birth argument that Ilya made. That argument makes a lot of, of uh, work. It does a lot of work. It bears a heavy load in the argument for open borders, and I'm not sure it can really carry that weight. Uh, so uh, it's fair enough to say that uh, moderate immigration restrictions of the kind I've mentioned uh, do rest on immigration, uh, and immigration is an accident of birth. You could be born here or elsewhere, and a lot does turn on that. Leah is absolutely right. Uh, but of course, societies do rely on at least some arbitrary distinctions in many kinds of modes, including some restrictions that are arbitrary, but that libertarians happen to favor. A good example is inherited wealth. Children benefit from inherited wealth, even though they haven't done anything to deserve it. Uh, it wasn't their efforts that created that wealth in the first place. But libertarians oppose measures to redress the balance, such as uh, confiscatory inheritance taxes. Uh, and libertarians don't care whether that wealth was in some way socially useful. They abhor the idea of the government picking and choosing between who's socially useful and who isn't. Uh, so that's a kind of accident of birth that libertarians tolerate. Seems to me it's not radically different from your place of birth in terms of immigration. Uh, then in terms of Kehoe solutions, well, here, Ilya's response is, well, for example, we could bar immigrants from acquiring citizenship for a particular period of time. And Ilya says, frankly, and to his credit, maybe even for a long period of time. But that kind of restriction also has costs. It creates a tiered system of membership because it means some people can vote and other people, because they're not citizens, cannot. Uh, and that tiered system is something we have experience with, and it's not a happy experience. So for example, we barred people from Japan for naturalizing through the first half of the 20th century. And that's probably one of the things that contributed to the notorious Japanese-American internment during World War II that the Supreme Court upheld in Korematsu, a case that ironically was just overruled by the Supreme Court in the travel ban case. But we don't want to revisit those days. That's not a happy memory, and that's not really consistent with our values. Indeed, that kind of long-term second-class status erodes the very values of constitutional democracy that it might help draw people here in the first place. So I think that's a countervailing factor that libertarians should acknowledge and address. Uh, and if we think about the importance of preserving those constitutional values, I think we ought to concede there's at least some sovereign interest in moderate and reasonable immigration restrictions. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Peter. And now uh, we will hear from Brian Kaplan. Please, please proceed. All right. Um, everyone else, thank the Cato Institute. I want to thank Ilya Soman himself. I'm so glad that he was, in fact, free to move from the Soviet Union to come here and join us. Unlikely, this uh, It is unlikely that the book Free to Move would have been written if Ilya himself had not been free to move. So good, good news. 
Uh, now I'm going to go over all of my complaints. I'm in great agreement with so much of the book, so don't get the wrong impression, but as an academic, my natural instinct is to say everything that I don't like or disagree with or just wonder about. Uh, so first thing, uh, this is a book where Ilya is really trying to sell social scientists on how great competition between governments is. And what's striking to me as an economist, most economists already actually have this idea. And generally when I talk to economists, I try to convince them that actually it isn't as good as we think it is. Uh, so in the book, Ilya mentions the Chibu model. This is a model that basically says that local governments work just like privately competing firms. The competition between you know, Fairfax and Oakton will be just like the competition between say McDonald's and Burger King. Right. And in fact, this just is not true. So you can, uh, you know, figuring out what's going on. Well, a big difference, of course, is that uh, the uh, local governments are not for profits. So they're just much less aggressive in actually trying to recruit both individuals and business to get them into, uh, to get them to relocate to their territory. You know, I often compare this to there's still a test, but it's the difference between a test that counts for your grade and a test that doesn't count for your grade. So the competition that you have between different localities, different states is a nonprofit test. It's one where the people that run the government don't actually get rich if they manage to attract a lot of different customers, if they attract a large new population, if they attract new business. And on the other hand, of course, if they don't go and attract them or if they even leave, it doesn't lead to a large reduction in profit. There could still be some effect upon their electoral outcomes, but those are actually quite a bit more complicated. Now, this is just theory, but if you want to actually see convincing demonstration of how relatively weak competition between governments is, one of them is you can just take a look at how little advertising there is trying to get people to move. You know, how often do you see, say, Maryland setting up signs in Virginia or mailing letters to Virginians saying, hey, if you consider Maryland, we've got a great deal for you. This is extraordinarily rare. There's a little bit of this for business. So if you go and read trade journals, sometimes say the state of Arkansas will go and try to convince uh, diamonds miners that maybe they should take a good look at Arkansas. But in general, there's very little recruitment effort, which I think is reflective of the fact that governments don't actually very deeply want to get new customers in the same way that business does. Uh, you can also just see how um, much local redistribution there is. So normally, if you were to rent a store and started trying to redistribute between your customers, you would just see the customers that you are trying to redistribute from wouldn't want to come anymore. But there is a lot of local redistribution, most obviously with public education. We can see that not only do the poor get the same access to schools that the rich do, but furthermore, you also see that families with a lot of kids uh, have to pay the same total taxes as families with no kids. Again, if competition worked as it normally did in the private sector, there should be a lot of localities where they just say, hey, do you want to send your kid to private school or do you have no kids or you're tired? Well, then we just don't have schools here and we have super low taxes. The very fact that we, that we don't see that really does give us an idea of how the competition just isn't at the same level of the for-profit sector. Now, Ilya, to his credit, does say, well, maybe it's just random variation that's better than nothing. Yeah, it's totally better than nothing, but worth, worth pointing out that it's not nearly as good as real full-blooded capitalist competition. All right. Uh, something else that uh, I don't think that Ilya touched upon at all, or maybe just very briefly, we also need to consider how much the federal government does to undermine this competition right now. So it's one thing to say that it's great to have it, but right now, so much of the budget of state and local governments is paid for by the federal government. 
And if you look at what's going on, it really seems like the concern is, well, look, if California were to go and have a big new socialized medicine scheme and then tax California's pay for it, then actually a lot of people in business would leave California. So therefore, we want the federal government to do it because we don't think that people are likely to leave America if there are very high taxes to pay for this stuff. So it seems like there's a system set up to deliberately mute the effect of competition and to reduce the benefit that a state gets from being a place where they have a where they have very good fiscal control over government spending and where they just offer people a good deal. Uh, again, though, of course, to most people, they would say, well, it's a feature, not a bug. But I really wish that Ilya had very strongly addressed this point and said, no, this is a problem. Uh, if it's really so great to have a government program, then a state government can offer it. And if people like it, then they'll say, hey, well, we, we on the one hand, we have to pay higher taxes. But on the other hand, we get this great benefit. Not only are we happy to be here, we're going to go and tell our friends in other states, move here in order to get this great deal where we have a great new program and higher taxes, but it's totally worth it. Right. So I think you know, Ilya, Ilya didn't talk about this very much and just talk about the way the federal grants are really undermining competition between states. And really just to flesh out the story, what would it be like in a world where federalism had a lot more sway? And it would be a world where a state would say, well, we want a program. Do people want to pay the extra taxes for it? If not, then I guess we're not going to have the program because it sounds good, but it's not really worth the price. All right. Uh, yes. So then, uh, you know, Ilya's point about random variation gives you some value, you know, makes a lot of sense. And it's worth pointing out that this is really probably what's going on even more so for international migration. Because, you know, the number of countries where they actually sit around saying, how can we make our country better so that more people want to come here? Very few. And probably maybe a little bit more, but also very few countries sit around saying, gee, people are fleeing our country. Maybe we should make this a better country so people don't want to flee the country anymore. Right. So you realize that you know, what's going on internationally is not driven by the desire to recruit or retain customers. It really is more along the lines of this random variation where some countries just have better policy than other, policies than others for reasons unrelated to desire to attract customers or train, retain customers. And then uh, because there's this random variation, it does lead to big differences in migration. But it's not, again, like real competition of a business where you're like, how can we make this a better product so more people want to buy it? Let's see. Uh, you know, something else that, that I would have liked to have seen would have been some greater skepticism about the race to the bottom. Uh, so Ilya does talk about the race to the bottom a little bit, but to my, for my taste, it was a bit rushed. So and this is an idea that if you have federalism, then the states that are actually the worst will be the ones that do the best, which is a strange idea, but it comes along to something like, well, we all know that, it'd be, that it's great to have very large welfare programs, but if you have those programs, then obviously people that pay taxes are going to want to leave the state. Right now, when you think about this argument a bit more, you don't say, well, wait a second. If it's really true that it's nicer to live in an area where government takes care of the poor, then the rich won't want to leave. They'll be happy. They'll say, isn't it so great that I can tour all around the state, not see any poverty, and I'm happy to pay extra taxes in order to live in a society like this? Right. And again, you'll actually notice that people often sometimes casually make this argument of I want to live in a society where everyone is taken care of. And yet what we see with federalism is even the people that want these programs seem afraid that people aren't really willing to hang around or migrate to places where you take it, where governments take care of everyone. So anyway, I would have I would have liked to have seen Ilya spend more time saying that this race to the bottom is really actually good competition. 
and it's putting a constraints upon policies that sound good but actually are costly and don't work nearly as well as their defenders claim. Um, in other words, I wish that Ilya talked more about one of my very favorite understudied psychological biases, which is called social desirability bias. This is the human tendency to like to believe things that sound good on the surface, right? So, you know, of course, the most mundane example or, or thing or would be something like, am I fat? Like, of course not. Of course not. You're totally not fat. But, you know, things like, you know, like, you know, education is the most important, good, most important thing in our society, right? Sounds really good. But obviously, since now we've closed a whole bunch of schools in order to prevent the spread of disease, education was not the most important thing in our society. That was just feel good propaganda. And I think that a lot of resistance to federalism comes from people repeating these feel good slogans instead of asking hard questions like, sure, that sounds good, but how much is it going to cost? Indeed, I would say anytime someone is selling government policies based upon images of how nice they are and they don't talk about how much money they will cost, this is a sign that this person is just an unreliable person and you should not listen to them. They're irresponsible. Right? A responsible person always says, how much is this going to cost? This is what you do with your own money and this is what a, a good trustee does when he's spending someone else's money. Uh, just one last point. Uh, so I think you know, like, you know, there is this resistance and skepticism to the idea of moving in order to make your life better. And I think this also actually quite strongly reflects the same bias of social desirability bias. Because here's the thing, when a person leaves a state or a country, what are they saying with their actions? Actions speak louder than words. That could have been the slogan of Ilya's book. In fact, it could have even been the title. He could have just called it Actions Speak Louder Than Words. Right, so voting with their feet speaks louder than than uh, than voting with a ballot box, right? But in any case, what is a person saying when they when they go and leave behind the state where they've grown up or the country where they've grown up? Really, what they're saying is, look, I don't think this is likely to be fixed. It's too it's too hard, and I'm going to go and solve my own problem, and the rest of you can figure out what you're doing, right? Which does not sound nice, but it's a very reasonable point. Just saying, it's not likely that. Congo is going to get its act together, so I'm going to leave, right? Does not sound good, but it's a reasonable point. And really the mechanisms that Ilya's defended, defending are ones where I think people have a bias against them because exercising your right to move rather than going and just trying to persuade your fellow citizens to turn things around just seems like a, you know, an antisocial a socially unacceptable thing. It's not something you want to go to a party and make friends by saying, you know what, I'm getting out of California because I'm sick of getting ripped off by the government here. I want to go to a state where the taxes are low and I don't have to go and pay for a lot of junk. Right? Not the kind of thing that you would say to make friends. And yet it's a totally reasonable point. So, and again, not that Ilio isn't aware of it, but I just wish there'd been more of it. And, and I'm always happy to just have more people talking about social desirability bias because it is so ubiquitous in life. It runs politics and yet not that many people even know the name. All right, so I'll leave it there. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Brian. Uh, just a reminder that you can still submit questions at any time at the Cato.org webpage for this event or on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter using the hashtag for the event, Cato Immigration. Uh, now Ilya will provide a few reactions to what he just heard. Uh, so Ilya, what do you think? Yeah. So I'd like to thank Peter and Brian for their very thoughtful comments and criticisms. Some of them raise issues that uh, we could 
in each in particular case, devote an entire separate forum to. So here I'll just offer a few brief responses. Uh, Peter uh, raises the issue of swamping. Uh, that's actually something I talk about at some length in the book. Uh, and I have a couple of responses to the concern. Uh, one is that in reality, swamping isn't that much of a problem because migration tends to be a gradual process that takes place over a period of years. And therefore, in periods historically, when we have had more open immigration policies, including near total open borders, swamping has not actually been much of an issue. Second, uh, I look at data in the book from countries where something like swamping perhaps did occur in the sense that uh, there were a large number of immigrants that came in relative to the size of the population in a short period of time, specifically the cases of Israel and Jordan in the 1990s. And in both of those instances, none of the bad effects claimed from swamping actually occurred. The immigrants were integrated relatively quickly because they were allowed to enter the labor market uh, and they increased the host society's wealth more than they decreased it. They also did not damage the equality of political institutions in those societies, even though in both cases, the migrants in question came from deeply liberal and authoritarian societies. In the case of Israel, it was actually people like me, uh, Russian Jews, but also a lot of non-Jewish Russians. In the case of Jordan, uh, Palestinians and others from the uh, Gulf states, also people who had lived under uh, oppressive authoritarian rule uh, for most of their lives. Where swamping could be a problem, the tapping the wealth uh, approach can also uh, work. Peter mentioned burdens on border communities. We can tap some of the vast wealth created by migration and subsidize those border community governments if necessary. Uh, it's much better than keeping people out entirely. I don't rule out possibilities where, where swamping could be so great or some other negative side effect of migration could be so great that it would justify restrictions. I even mentioned one or two examples like that in the book, but I think most of the examples claimed uh, for this theory actually don't work, uh, and real cases of dangerous swamping are extremely rare. Uh, so uh, the second uh, issue that uh, he raises is the uh, issue of, of protecting uh, of, 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 of the danger of potentially keyhole solutions and that you might get tiers of citizenship or a hierarchical society. Uh, I think uh, it's worth pointing out, as I do in the book, that by keeping people out, we've created a hierarchical society, indeed much more hierarchical than anything that would arise from keeping them, uh, from letting them in, but restricting certain rights in that we trap those people we keep out in deeply oppressive poor societies for the entirety of their lives. So to say that we're preventing a tiered society uh, by keeping people out is a little bit like saying that actually Jim Crow segregation prevented a tiered society because by keeping all the blacks in one place or in certain particular places, we made sure that there wouldn't be a racial hierarchy in the places where the whites live. Uh, I think that argument just doesn't work. You create more hierarchy this way than the other way. I would add also that the measures that I mentioned about keyhole solutions, in almost all cases, they wouldn't require some kind of lifelong or indefinite uh, restriction. Uh, what we're talking about is restrictions on particular types of welfare benefits, we're talking perhaps instead of a five-year period for acquiring citizenship and voting rights, a 10 or a 15-year period. If the five-year period is not so morally objectionable that we have to keep people out in order to prevent having to impose the five-year period, I'm not sure why a 10-year period or a 15-year period 
uh, is somehow over the line, especially if it does not apply to the immigrants' children. And indeed, the evidence suggests that uh, the gap in political views between migrants and natives isn't actually that great. Uh, and it's even less in the second or third generation. So these measures would not need to be forever or even perhaps for the entire life of the uh, particular migrant uh, in question. Finally, on accidents of birth and inherited wealth, if you're a libertarian, I think you would answer that argument by saying there's a big difference between the government uh, imposing burdens based on accidents of birth uh, and private individuals making decisions that way with their own wealth. Uh, private individuals have the right to engage in many types of discrimination that governments do not, including even in some cases, discrimination on the basis of race, religion, political views and the like. I mentioned the differences between a private homeowner and the government. If you're not a libertarian and you want to impose various restrictions on inherited wealth, on unearned wealth and the like, then you should be even more in favor of free international migration than you are of, of say, inheritance taxes domestically, because the differences based on accidents of birth in terms of uh, between countries are much larger than any differences between an American who inherits a lot of money from their parents and one that inherits very little. Uh, uh, so if you think the that latter case is unjust and need to be alleviated through taxation, uh, then keeping migrants out is even more unjust in the same way. Uh, very briefly on Brian's objections, Brian says, well, there's not as much competition as really there should be between regional and local governments. I think that's true to some extent, but I mentioned in the book that even if there's no competition at all, foot voting can still be tremendously advantageous. And I also mentioned various ways that, it might, that competition can be stimulated, including by reducing or eliminating federal grants to state and local governments, something I discuss in two or three different places in the book, thereby uh, incentivizing them to compete for tax revenue uh, because they would only be able to raise tax revenue from their own citizens. It's true, I think, that regions and uh, cities don't often advertise for migrants, so they're advertising somewhat more than Brian suggests. On the other hand, they do often advertise for businesses. And when they advertise to try to get businesses to come in, they often need to show that they have good conditions for workers as well, because obviously a place where nobody wants to live uh, or a place where uh, uh, the public services are really bad is one where workers will not uh, want to be. The race to the bottom is also an issue I do spend a decent amount of time on in the book and more in previous writings. I point out that uh, the race to bottom theory is flawed conceptually uh, in various ways, and also it doesn't seem to check out empirically. For example, it just isn't the case that states seem to favor business interests over everybody else. Uh, and also, as I already mentioned, there's often a confluence of interest between businesses that might want to move uh, and workers because businesses want to be in places which are going to be attractive uh, to their workers. Uh, it's possible I should have made an even more thoroughgoing criticism of the race to the bottom than I actually did. Uh, Brian may be right about that. Brian is certainly right that social desirability bias uh, is a big part of the picture here. Uh, but if I were going to do that issue justice, it would probably require a whole other book. Uh, so on that note, I conclude, but I very much look forward to audience questions. Thank you. Thank you, Ilya. Uh, we will now open it up for questions to all the panelists. Uh, please submit your questions at the Cato.org webpage for this event or on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter using the hashtag for the event, 
uh, Cato Immigration. Uh, Ilya, I'm, I'm going to use my prerogative to start off the questions uh, by asking, you know, in the United States, we do have open borders between states, uh, but we are also a single governmental jurisdiction. And there are also probably more internal migrants uh, between states inside of India and China than international migrants in the entire world. Uh, if we broke up the EU, we'd probably have less uh, freedom to move uh, for Europeans. Uh, is there a tension between you wanting more governmental jurisdictions to move to and also wanting greater freedom to move? Thank you. Yeah, it's a good question and one that I actually address in some detail in chapters seven and eight of the book uh, where uh, I talk about internal constitutional arrangements and how they can be structured in ways to maximize foot voting opportunities. And in chapter eight, I talk about international law. Uh, I think it would be bad to have a world government or uh, some kind of strong system of global governance because there would be no way to vote with your feet uh, to leave that government behind. I talk about that at some length in chapter eight. Uh, how many nations there should be in the world or how many states there should be in the US, uh, I think, I have not attempted in this book to sort of try to come up with an optimal number uh, for that. Uh, but I do think uh, there is a major qualitative, not just quantitative difference between having only one jurisdiction for the entire world versus having some substantial number, uh, you know, 50, 100 or more, whatnot. Uh, uh, perhaps also it would be problematic if there were only two or three, as in George Orwell's 1984, where you have the three totalitarian states, which are basically the same, and they're at war, but they also essentially collude to make sure that there's no uh, freer regime that's on offer for uh, potential migrants or anybody else. Uh, so I think the issue of what sort of the optimal number of jurisdictions is does not depend solely or perhaps even primarily on uh, foot voting opportunities, it depends on a lot of other things as well. So I would just caution both against the extreme of having only one for the whole world or only a very small number, and perhaps against the other extreme of having so many that are so small that you lose economies of scale. Uh, and also you potentially end up with lots of petty fiefdoms that prevent people from moving, which I think is what happened in the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, there was enormous decentralization, uh, but also most people were serfs who were not allowed to move at all. So they were completely under the thumb uh, of their local lord. Excellent. So now we have a question. Uh, from an audience member saying, I have a conservative colleague who argues that migration to the U.S. eases pressure on home governments around the world to improve their operations. Uh, should people be forced to stay in their country and fix their home governments? What do you think? Yeah. This is another issue that I address in some detail in the book, uh, but we didn't have time for in the presentation. Very happy to talk about it now, and I appreciate the questioner bringing it up. Uh, so if you really believe this argument, then you should have to believe that it was bad that all the ancestors of most current Americans came to the U.S. They should have stayed home and fixed the Russian Empire, fixed the British Empire. Donald Trump's uh, grandfather should have stayed home and fixed Bavaria and so forth. Uh, I think the problem with this argument, in addition to the fact that it would de-justify the history of the United States and also Canada and other countries, uh, is that uh, it suggests that 
people are somehow owned by their home governments or their home societies and have a duty to stay. I think that's not true. Indeed, it's inimical to any kind of notion, uh, not just of libertarian freedom, but also human freedom generally. It also assumes that those people had the power to fix their home countries, which in the case of most migrants is not true. It is in fact extremely difficult to fix dysfunctional and oppressive institutions and only rarely do historical opportunities arise where that becomes reasonably feasible. Finally, as I also note in the book, uh, there's evidence that the act of migration itself can actually help put pressure on the home government. It can do so in two ways. One is it does reduce the uh, tax uh, revenue of the government and reduces the talent available to it. But second, uh, in societies which have a large diaspora in more liberal or more democratic countries, there is a communication of ideas back home, which promotes liberalization. I cite some studies in the book which suggest that this has happened with Central America, uh, where several of those countries have large diasporas in the U.S. It has happened elsewhere as well. Finally, the home country can often benefit uh, from the remittances that immigrants send home to their families, uh, some of whom may stay in the original country. Those remittances not only improve their economic well-being, but there's some evidence that suggests that they foster uh, political reform as well. In particular, it makes some people in the home country less dependent on their government for support and therefore more willing to speak out against it. I don't claim that this always works to promote reform and that it's infallible, it by no means is, uh, but I would suggest it's better than trapping people under oppressive governments in the hope that maybe someday, somehow, uh, they will reform them. To the contrary, what we should seek ultimately is not so much to fix particular governments, but to increase the number of people who live in greater freedom and happiness and prosperity. And the fastest way to do that for the largest number of people is in fact by allowing freer migration. Great, so then we have another question from uh, Brett Belmore. He says, uh, doesn't foot voting depend on a diversity of places to walk to? It seems to me that without some kinds of limits, open immigration has a very strong potential to reduce the diversity at rendering foot voting less valuable. What do you think? I, I, I wonder if you could repeat the questions. I was having trouble hearing you. I apologize. He asks, uh, doesn't foot voting depend on a diversity of places to walk to? Uh, he says that it seems to me that without limits, open immigration has a very strong potential to reduce the diversity of places to go to, rendering foot voting less valuable. Oh, I see. So this is the, uh, the sort of the big sort objection that is sometimes made, which says that if we allow everybody to live where they want, uh, everybody would want to live in places that are uh, like their own home country or, or like their own preference. Uh, and therefore, uh, say all the conservatives have moved to the same places, all the liberals move to the same places, all the people who like one particular type of culture would move to the same place and so forth. And therefore, every area would potentially be homogenous. Uh, and I think the answer uh, is that uh, often people don't want complete homogeneity. They actually, in many cases, like more diverse areas. Uh, and therefore, uh, you don't see this kind of big sort happening. Alternatively, there might be a different version of the uh, objection, which goes the opposite extreme, that instead of each area being homogenous, 
Uh, each area will be diverse, but it'll be diverse in exactly the same way as every other area. Uh, I think that version of the objection is, if anything, potentially weaker uh, because given that people do have different preferences, not everybody is going to want to be in the same kind of place. Uh, and you will see a, still uh, a considerable mix of jurisdictions. Uh, and therefore, it's unlikely either that every jurisdiction will be internally homogenous or that everyone will be diverse in exactly the same way or anything close to it. I noticed that Brian wanted to respond to this question as well, or perhaps the previous one. Uh, and if it's OK, I'd like to give Brian a chance to do so. Please, Brian, go ahead. Quick point. So my other reaction to that question is that diversity is only one of the things that people are shopping around for. Probably more important than diversity is just getting a good deal. So when you're shopping around for projector, one thing is, well, I want to get exactly the right kind of projector just for me. Another one, though, is I want to get a high quality projector for very little money. And similarly, when people are deciding what locality they want to live in or what state or what country, a lot of what they're looking for is not something that is diverse. Rather, what they're looking for is I want a place where the prices are low and the wages are high and I can have a nice life. And if there's 10 places that all are like that, all striving to outdo each other, even though they're not very diverse, that can still be a great deal. Yeah, just, just to expand on that very slightly, uh, not many people are looking at diversity or lack of diversity as their sort of first order preference in terms of where they want to live. But there is a lot of evidence that Richard Florida and other scholars have compiled that certain kinds of diversity also increase prosperity and other kinds of opportunities for people. So people in many cases might try to move to more diverse areas, not because they like the diversity for its own sake, but because diversity has certain other kinds of benefits that they do like, though of course that won't be true for all potential movers. Excellent. Uh, so here's another question. How does foot voting manage the fact that no country is fully free? Aren't we merely trading certain freedoms uh, for others? Trading really? certain what for others, I'm sorry? Certain freedoms. I, I, it was hard for me to hear the one. Um, Where, aren't we? So, in one sense, that's true. There is no jurisdiction in the world that's at, at all perfect, either from a libertarian standpoint or really any other standpoint. So, there are always trade offs involved. That said, there are often huge differences between jurisdictions such that one is vastly better than another, even if it's not perfect. So, the US is very far from perfect but it's vastly better than Cuba or Venezuela or North Korea. Western Europe is far from perfect, but it's vastly better than Syria or Libya and so on. And even with internal migration, there are sometimes quite large differences between jurisdictions on various dimensions. So while there is no deal that any jurisdiction offers that's perfect, uh, there are some deals that for many people are vastly better than others. Uh, and those advantages are worth capturing, uh, even though, uh, in no case will a migrant arrive in a place that, yes, this is the absolute utopia. There are no flaws here at all. Excellent. Uh, Brian, would you like to respond or Peter? I'm okay. Okay. Um, here's another question for you. Um, Victor Davis Hansen makes the point that immigration that does not assimilate to become Americans is bad for the body politic. Uh, your thoughts? 
I guess a lot depends on what is meant by assimilating to become Americans. If it means adopting every single aspect of what we might call American culture, then I don't think it's necessarily harmful at all. Indeed, what we call American culture is in fact the product of different ways of immigration of various kinds. Uh, and so if you wanted to keep the culture static, uh, you know, we're several hundred years too late to do that. I do in the book address, uh, I think, what is the more serious argument, which says that uh, it's not that cultural change is necessarily bad in general, but that there are particular types of cultural values that are harmful, such as illiberal cultural values, undemocratic ones, and so forth. And here I make several points. Uh, one is that the data for the U.S. Uh, compiled by the National Academy of Sciences and other uh, studies repeatedly say that today immigration uh, immigrants to actually assimilate at at least as high rates in the as in the past uh, and possibly in some respects even higher. Second, there's a lot that can be done to speed assimilation of even large immigrant groups. The most, the biggest is simply letting them into the labor market, which enables them to interact with natives, gives people incentives to learn English, uh, and so on. And third, when you look in the U.S. and even to a large extent in Europe, uh, there, the differences in political views between immigrants and natives are actually not that large. It is not the case that immigrants want to impose some kind of dictatorship or some kind of illiberal society, uh, and they become even smaller in the second or third generation. So I do think, and I posit this in the book as well, there can be extreme cases where there's an enormous wave of immigrants with deeply liberal views, and for whatever reason, it's not possible to keep them from influencing government policy. So your only options are either to keep some people out or to allow a dictatorship of some kind or an illiberal society. But while that possibility can't be ruled out in theory, it seems very unlikely in reality. And there are various mechanisms that can be taken to alleviate it, most obviously letting people inch the labor market as quickly as possible, which gives them more opportunities uh, to assimilate. Uh, I know both Brian and Peter have comments on this. Uh, Brian has actually written about this a good deal himself. Why don't you start us off, Peter? Peter, go ahead. Uh, so I'll, I'll just quickly say that my father uh, is an immigrant. Uh, he, he, he passed away at the age of 99 a couple of years ago, but uh, he was from Vienna. He had to leave Vienna as a refugee in 1938 when he saw Hitler waving to his beloved Viennese from Hotel Balcony. My father said at that point, I got to get out of here. He went to Shanghai for 10 years, to Shanghai, China, and then he came here. Now, that's a remarkable experience. I once asked my dad, well, how did you cope with that disruption in your life, moving from Vienna and everything you love there, the pastries, everything else, and going to Shanghai? He said, I was 20. So how could we lose by having someone of that resilience enter our society? It seems to me that's, in, in kind of a nutshell, a wonderful argument for how people do contribute to what makes America great. Go ahead, Brent. Yeah, I think the quickest way to understand assimilation is this. Talk to an immigrant parent. Talk to an immigrant parent and ask them, so how much are your kids assimilating? pretty much 100% of all immigrant parents that I've ever talked to will then get upset and talk about how much their kids are assimilating and they don't like it, it's too much. They say, my kid doesn't speak the language that well, not really teaching my grandkids the language, my kid isn't interested in the culture of our home country, and on and on and on. I say, well, 
these are the people who know what's really going on. They actually know the difference between what it's like to grow up in their home country and the way their kid is turning out. And when they say that they see a lot of assimilation, we should, assimilation, we, we should believe them. Now, as to whether that's good or bad is a separate issue, but the fact that assimilation is very high and that when you see a scary story on the news of a kid from a Western educated family who joins ISIS or something, those are just ultra rare events that are make great television, but are not telling us about how the world really works. If you want to know how the world really works, talk to immigrant parents and they'll tell you. Great. We're going to take one more question. Uh, Andy says, uh, can Peter respond to Ilya's comment about swamping not being a problem in cases where it has occurred? And can he give any examples of where swamping may have caused uh, major problems and where exclusion uh, would have been justified? Yeah, I, I would on balance disagree with Ilya on the difficulties posed by swamping. I do think it can be a problem. So, for example, in Texas, you've had significant inflow of immigrants from the South, from Mexico or Central America. And unfortunately, again, the federal government has not done a good job of reimbursing Texas for those costs. And I don't see any way with our federal system that we can persuade the Congress to do a better job. Certainly, this Congress has not been good about that. And so as long as we have a federal system, which Ilya actually thinks is a good idea, we're going to have consequences of federalism, including not giving adequate money to gateway locations like Texas, New York, or Florida care for immigrants. And that means you're going to have disruptions. You're going to have difficult choices, difficulties with strained budgets. I think states have a right to say, we don't want to gamble in that way. Well, we are entitled to at least a measure of deference in how we make those decisions and avoiding those disruptions. Julia, what do you think? Briefly, Any other thoughts? Yeah, so Texas, Florida, and the other states that Peter mentioned are all enormous net beneficiaries of migration from Latin America. Migrants from those countries have added enormously to those states' productivities, vastly outweighing any fiscal costs imposed on so-called gateway locations. So if it's a problem, we don't even need federal subsidies. Uh, the state government could potentially subsidize its border communities if it wanted to uh, by tapping some of the vast extra wealth that migration has created. I would note also that many of the problems in border communities in these areas are in fact caused by the federal government's immigration exclusions, which have created things like border detention centers. They've also created uh, illegal migration because since it's very difficult or almost impossible to get in legally, you have illegal migration, which causes issues for uh, border communities uh, and the like. Uh, so I think those examples uh, are not very compelling. If I was going to argue the case, I would try to point to places which have large numbers of refugee camps like Turkey and elsewhere, uh, where you know arguably it's much more of a burden. Uh, but even there, I think the burden could be alleviated if those people were allowed to enter the labor market. And also if those people were allowed to move on to other places rather than being forcibly kept in the border areas and uh, having to stay in refugee camps. Thank you, Ilya. That's all the time we have for today. But thank you, Ilya, Peter, and Brian for joining us. And thanks to everyone who joined us online for this discussion of Free to Move. We had a lot of questions come in, and I apologize that we couldn't get to all of them. 
The video recording of this event will be available on Cato's webpage later today. Uh, thank you and have a great day.